I'll just say it. I recruited him. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was here six months ago, announcements were just announcements. And uh, now, you know, potato salad is the gospel. And so things are on the up and up. My name is Gray Ewing. Uh, I am also a pastor here. Uh, it's sad in some ways I have to introduce myself. Uh, six months ago, my family moved downtown. Uh, we have a second congregation there. Uh, we're one church and two congregations, and uh, we moved downtown to take over that plant. And so uh, we meet in the evenings, so it's still fun to pop over here every six to eight weeks or so and be with you all. Love it. Miss you guys. And, uh, but excited to open up God's Word with you. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we'll be looking at verses 33 through 42. Matthew 5, 33. Continuing in our, our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, Jesus has been saying these, these things. He's been saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, uh, what's known as the six antitheses, uh, things that Jesus corrects. What is he correcting? Is he correcting the Old Testament? Is he, is he quoting from the Old Testament and saying the Old Testament's wrong, and now I am saying the right thing? No, he, he's quoting uh, what the tradition has become, the Pharisees and the scribes, how they have distorted God's word um, to, to be narrower uh, than what he, God intended, to show the depth of who he is in his word. And so Jesus is correcting that. He's expanding it. And here there's a shift. We're going to look at the fourth and the fifth time that he says, you have heard it said today. And um, before, it was much more about personal relationships when your brother is angry, when you're angry with your brother, um, or we talked about adultery, we talked about divorce, these, these relationships that are my friends or my spouse. But in these, uh, this shift here, he moves kind of to the public eye. How are Christians supposed to live in front of uh, everyone, in the public eye, in the public sphere? And uh, he has some things to say about that based on the law as well. So let's read it together. Uh, Matthew 5 verse 33 through 42. Let's read together. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil or from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This is the word of the Lord. When I lived in uh, St. Louis, I went to seminary there. Um, we, uh, we moved into this little house in a neighborhood near the seminary, and uh, we got started to get to know our neighbors. And one, one neighbor in particular uh, was, was a good friend uh, of mine. His name was Ed. And I feel like it's like you got to have a neighbor named Ed at some point in your life. It's just kind of normal. Uh, Ed was the kind of guy who was gruff, 
manly. Uh, there was all kinds of machines in, in the yard, uh, like lawnmowers and uh, four-wheelers and stuff that he would work on. Great dude, not a Christian, um, but was kind, but gruff and manly and not the cleanest person in the world uh, in any sense of, of that word. But he and I had, had a good relationship, and, um, you know, as a pastor or pastor in training at, at, the point, at that point, uh, I'll just let you in on a little secret. We try to put off the what do you do for a living uh, conversation as long as possible, um, not because we're ashamed of it, but because it just kind of creates some weird uh, things. Some people just start confessing to you right away. Some <laughs> people say, I'm sorry for cussing so much. You know, uh, you know, you just get these interactions. You'd rather them be normal for as long as possible. And uh, I, I was able to put that off for almost a year. Uh, we would talk all the time just about sports or whatever, and uh, we had a good relationship. And then one day, I couldn't avoid it any longer. He asked me straight up, I don't even know what you do for a living. And so I had to tell him, uh, you know, I'm a Christian, and uh, I'm studying to be a pastor, and, you know, that's, that's what I'm doing with my life. And, and he looked at me, and it was, he took a minute to register, and then he smiled, and he said, really, that surprises me. <laughs> I had to think about that one a <laughs> long time. That surprises me. That could be good or bad, Right? Uh, there's a couple of different options there. That surprises me. Is it that, negatively, my life has no impact from the Christian message that I profess, right? Um, is it that uh, the way that I speak, the way that I live, is no different than the rest of the world, and therefore it would be a surprising fact to someone who knows what Christianity is and what it's all about, uh, they would say, that's not, I don't see anything there. Is it that, or is it option two, I hope it was, I think it was, uh, that I don't like Christianity, I knew that, that he didn't, uh, and knowing you surprises me because I have this conception of Christianity, and you are challenging that, right? That surprises me that you would be this person that I usually hate, but I actually like you. There's a tension there, right? There's a tension in the way that we live before other people. And to name some of what that tension is, I think, I think we feel this. We feel that we're supposed to be different, right? Christians are supposed to be different people. We're supposed to live differently. We're supposed to speak differently. And, uh, and we feel this. We know this to be true because if we, ha if we haven't been changed by the gospel, if our life hasn't changed, then really, what is the point? On the other hand, we don't want to be seen as strange and weird and like, uh, you know, get on the news for like carrying signs that say God hates whoever. And so we don't want to be these strange Christians. And so we live in this place. So maybe we decide to embrace that. I'm, I'm weird and strange in public and, I, you know, just it doesn't matter. You can just think whatever you want. Or we come over here and we say, I'm, I'm not going to talk or live any differently whatsoever before people because I don't want them to think of me that way. I'd rather win them over the long haul. And so there's a kind of a tension there. What I, Jesus, I think, expands that for us, and he says this. What, this is what I want us to see from the Sermon on the Mount today. Jesus invites us into a life that looks both different and beautiful. Jesus invites us into a life that looks both different and beautiful, not one or the other, but different 
In the public eye, like I said, we, we shifted to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is saying, when you take oaths, when, you're, when, you're, when you go to court, when you're out and about and someone slaps you or insults you, how do you respond as a Christian in the public eye? You're supposed to look different. But it's not a weird, strange, like, I don't want nothing to do with you different. It's a beautiful different. And I think he shows us how to do that. I want us to see three things that, that are different or actually just weird about what, what, how we should be weird as Christians and yet beautifully so. Number one, we're called to be weirdly truthful. Weirdly people of the truth. Jesus says in verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And then he goes on to list all these situations. Uh, don't take an oath at all. What is, what is Jesus uh, countering here? Why does he say that? Why is he challenging this? Uh, it seems like that would be a good statement. Uh, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That seems like that would be a good thing for the Pharisees or for the tradition to say. So why is he saying, why is he challenging that? He's challenging it because uh, for a couple of different reasons. The Pharisees have, have narrowed, first of all, their definition of how to fulfill this law. And this law is based on, on the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. In other passages, like in Leviticus 19, you shall not swear by my name falsely. And they took those and they combined them and they said, Really, the only application of this is in a public court. Like when you're, when you're swearing, you know, you, uh, you don't want to perjure yourself, so if you say something in the Lord's name, then you have to do it in court. But secondly, and, and more uh, deeply, what they were doing wrong is, what th- is they were saying, if you swear by the Lord's name, it's different than if you swear by anything else. If you swear by the Lord's name, you should really do it. But if you speak and you don't use the Lord's name, then maybe there's some wiggle room there. And that's what Jesus is challenging. He's saying, he's taking them deeper. He's saying, don't you care about the truth? Not just what words or the formula that you use to speak. Do you care about the truth? It's not just a loophole. Stop using these loopholes. What are some of the loopholes they use? Don't take an oath either by heaven, for it's the throne of God. Uh, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. This is what they would do. They would say, oh, I swear by Jerusalem, but that's less binding than if I swear by the Lord's name. And he's saying, but you can't do that, because uh, Jerusalem is the city of the great king, and, and the earth is his footstool, and if you swear by heaven, that's God's throne room. Don't you see that everything you do uh, relates back to God, because God is the truth. And so if you speak You should be someone who speaks the truth because God is truth. He's taking them deeper. God defines truth because he is truth. Um, Back uh, some, like maybe like a year ago, uh, many of you know, I was a student pastor here for quite a while, and uh, I once was very mean to our students, uh, played this game with them. And uh, I don't know if any of the students in the room remember this, but I set them up really bad. Uh, I brought them in. We were about to start our talk. And I, I said a, a very churchy question that expects a very churchy answer. I said, is there anything that God can't do? And I got a few head shakes now. So I, I tried to energize them a little bit. You know, is there anything that God can't do? Shout it out to me. No. You know. 
Who thinks that something is impossible for God? No one raised their hand. <laughs> and then I said, who thinks everything is possible for God? And everybody raised their hand. And then I threw up Hebrews 6.18. It's impossible for God to lie. Mic drop, gotcha, <laughs> you know. And it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for him to deny himself, Scripture says. Why? You know, we say this, it almost sounds like heretical or something, but God is the truth. He doesn't lie because he is the, the truth. He defines it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And we, if we're going to be in him, if we're going to be changed people, different, we have to be weirdly truthful people too. Not using formulas to get around what we're trying to say, but our yes being our yes and our no being our no. And Jesus says anything more than that comes from the evil one. And we know that's true because the evil one, our great enemy, is the father of what? Lies. But God's the truth. Now you may be wondering, as we talk about this, as people often do, that what does this mean for us when it comes to like contracts and oaths? Does, does what Jesus say here mean that if we're ever called to court and we, we swear on the Bible, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, that Christians are people that are not supposed to do that, are not supposed to sign real estate contracts. Uh, we wonder that as we read this, and some traditions have, in fact, made that interpretation from Jesus' words. The Anabaptist tradition from the Reformation uh, times, and then today, the Society of Friends, the Quakers, still hold that we should never do any kind of contract in a public setting or any setting. Uh, we can't have that interpretation, though, uh, for one, because the, the whole Bible is full of, of oaths. Uh, in fact, God in the Old Testament lists out how to take an oath, step by step, and uh, he is a God who swears by himself. In Hebrews chapter 6, uh, he swears by himself this oath, it says. Uh, God, God swears an oath to his people. And so what is it that Jesus is teaching is if he's not teaching that we can't ever do this in a public setting? What he's doing is, is he's, he's revealing the heart, and he's saying this. With the people that you know, because sometimes we need to sign contracts with other people we don't know, binding things, but with the people that you know, you shouldn't have to do anything to your words to make them believable, to be credible. You shouldn't have to do anything to them, but we do. We add things and we take away so that we can be more credible. We add promises and swearing. Um, one particularly challenging way to think about this is uh, imagine your child coming to you and saying, Daddy, will you play with me? And you say, I'll play with you after dinner, son. And they turn to you and say, do you promise? That should be a knife in your heart every time you hear that. Do you promise? Why, does, why is a kid adding that to you? It's because they've been burned before. You've said something and you haven't lived it out. We do this, we add, I promise, I swear, this time I really mean it. What does that assume? When you say this time I really mean it, it assumes that before, your yes has not been yes, your no has not been no. We are 
incredible. We don't add credibility when we do these things. We add other things, adding hyperbole. Pastors are guilty here. This is going to be amazing, life-changing, incredible. We add these things to our words in inappropriate times, ironically, because we're trying to add credibility to what we're saying, but it undermines our credibility over time because not everything is amazing, right? We're, we're all guilty of this. We try to convince people by adding things, but our word should be enough. Sometimes we take away things, understatement. I don't want to promise too much. I don't want to say the truth because if it, you know, if, if something turns out differently, then it might reflect badly on me. I, I don't want to disappoint anyone, so we neglect to speak the truth. We leave out pertinent pieces of information. We say all true things, but we forget to say this other true thing, which would change the perspective. And the point is, everybody relates to this in this room because we all do this with our words. And everyone in the world does this. We don't expect any different. We expect, we live in a world where politicians, we expect them to answer in ways that are not, uh, you know, necessarily straightforward. And we see that, and we're like, I wonder how they're going to answer this. We know that they're not going to answer it with the truth, right? How are they going to dance around this one? And it's like this collective understanding that, uh, that we live in a non-truthful world. But Christians are called to be weirdly different in this regard. Weirdly so that when we speak, we're known to be people whose word is true. Weirdly so. Second thing, weird thing that Christians do. <laughs> We're supposed to be weirdly non-defensive. This one's really hard. <laughs> because everything inside of us wants to defend ourselves all the time. It's our armor against the world. Jesus says this in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, this one kind of troubles us a little bit because Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament here. Um, other times there's kind of a misquoting of the Old Testament, but he is actually directly quoting uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's in the, that's in the Bible. So is Jesus neglecting what the, what the Bible says about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. No, he's expanding it. The eye for the eye and tooth for the tooth principle is true in a, in a legal setting. That's what it was for in the Old Testament. Let me explain the principle. The principle is proportionate justice. Right? When, when you lose something or you're, uh, you are challenged in court, there should be a proportionate sense of justice. And so in the Old Testament, we have examples of uh, someone who steals a sheep. If you steal a sheep, then you have to return not one sheep, but two sheep to the person that you stole from. That's proportionate justice. If you just brought the sheep back, then they're still out what they had lost for a little while, right? So the proportionate thing is you should give what, you, what the person would have lost if you had not been caught. That's, that's the eye for the eye, tooth for the tooth uh, principle. And what he's saying is that's still good for society, to have rules like this, obviously, uh, for proportionate justice. It actually protects both the victim and the, the evildoer. Right? It protects the victim because they get back what they uh, would have lost. But it also protects the victim, like, you stole my sheep, now I'm going to kill you. Right? It would not be proportionate justice. And so Jesus is not saying that's not true anymore. What he's saying is, if you have that mentality all the time in your personal relationships, it will, it will quickly be a way for you to hide your own vengeance. 
Because we know this to be true. That person said this about me. Therefore, I'm going to say these, these things about him or her. And so we kind of get this back and forth, like proportionate justice we want, but it's really just vengeance. We want to control people. And we want this back and forth to keep going, but what he's saying is the back and forth should end with you. When you absorb the blow, and he gives two examples of this. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Uh, a lot that's been written about this, a lot of commentators think what he's talking about is the, the second blow is the insulting blow. And so if you, uh, if you strike someone, typically with your right hand, then you're going to hit the person on the left side of their face, and then you come back for a second blow, and that's the backhand, right? And even we know what that means, right? A backhand is insulting, even in, even in conversation today, if you do this, like, I'm going to smack you. It's, it's insulting. And he's referring to the insults that re- we receive as Christians. He's saying, you can receive those insults. You can absorb some. You c- the, the back and forth, the eye for the eye and tooth for the tooth can end with you. If you absorb it. The second example he gives is that of in the courtroom, the, the su- someone suing you. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, a lot's going on there, too, uh, from the Old Testament. He's, you could sue someone for their tunic. Uh, if they wronged you, you could sue them, take them to court, take their clothing, but you couldn't take their cloak. That's in Old Testament law because the cloak is the way that you stay warm at night, and that was not proportionate justice. You should not take someone's cloak, but he's saying you can offer even that which is very important to you in order to absorb this back and forth, this blow. This is, this is referring to, what he's saying is this. Do you care more about peace than defending yourself? Do you care more about peace than defending yourself? In your, in your context of your relationships, you know, in your marriages, is it about who can win? Who, how, can you present yourself as the best possible way, or do you care about peace and absorbing what, uh, what this back and forth is bringing? And it's so hard because the insult, um, the impulse is to, is to always strike back. In fact, one, one Scottish preacher uh, said about this, this turn the other cheek, he said his interpretation was this. Uh, Jesus says, if you receive a blow, then you should turn the other cheek and, and get the second blow. But then he said, uh, but the third lick, the third lick, I say, belongs to you. <laughs> That's quite the interpretation, and I, I relate with that a little bit as a, as a Scottish guy myself. Ewing is a Scottish last name. Uh, that little fiery, like, okay, I can take two blows, but the third time, it's all me. That's not what Jesus is teaching. He's talking about absorbing rather than defending. Lastly, not just weirdly, truthful and weirdly non-defensive, but weirdly generous. Two more examples that he gives. Not only uh, do we absorb, but then we give back with generosity. These two pictures he gives. First, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. That's referring to where the Roman soldiers could constrict, uh, conscript services from people. They could come and and say, walk with me this mile, carry this stuff for me. That's what the law required. But he's saying you can go beyond what the law requires. You can give generously. 
and, and say, I'll go with you too. And then, lastly, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. He's saying even if someone doesn't have the authority to make you do that, a Roman soldier does have the authority, but just think about the person who's coming to you and they're, they're asking from you, are you the type of person who gives generously beyond what anyone would expect? Now, Jesus is using hyperbole here. Uh, just like when we talked about uh, cutting off the hand and gouging out the eye. I mean, you guys have all your eyes, uh, I'm seeing this morning for the most part, in your hands. What Jesus is saying is, are you the type of person, have you been transformed? Is this idea of the kingdom, this ideal that I'm setting before you, do you live into that reality at all? Are you weirdly truthful? Weirdly. Are you really generous? I remember in high school, I went to this Bible study, and uh, I'd only been going a few weeks. This is a guy named Pastor Ward, and he just taught a bunch of high school students randomly on, on a night, and uh, he, I was learning so much from him. And uh, I respected him greatly, even though I barely knew him. And I wanted to introduce my then-girlfriend, now-wife, Becca, to him. We were high school sweethearts and uh, dated long distance. And she was coming in uh, from out of town. And so I approached him one night after maybe three or four times of going to his Bible study and saying, I really want to introduce you to my girlfriend. And, uh, you know, could we stop by for a few minutes sometime? I just want you to meet her. And I rem he immediately said, oh, we should go out to dinner together. Uh, I just got a gift card to, you know, Olive Garden. And so I have a $100 gift card. Let's go out to dinner in like two nights from now. And so I, I was invited to this dinner, and uh, it was he, me and him and, you know, my girlfriend and his son and his son's girlfriend. It was the weirdest thing. It's like I barely know this person. I'm eating Olive Garden with him like a few days later. Um, but it, it was weird in a beautiful way because he was so immediately and quickly and unreasonably generous with me. That's what we're talking about. Different, not annoying different, but beautifully so. Standing out. This is what Jesus is inviting us into, and it's challenging. I hope you hear the challenge of it, but it's the life that he lived as well, and he is the power for that life. Because he's all these things and more. The Bible says no one lived like this man, Jesus. He spoke the truth like no one else. First Peter chapter 2 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He lived the truth. He was the truth. If you're in him, you're in the truth. He was weirdly non-defensive, non-defensive like no one else, obviously. He didn't defend himself. Isaiah 53 like a lamb before its shearers is silent. The old gospel song says he never said a mumbling word. As he faced his accusers, he was silent before them and did not defend himself when they spit on him and mocked him because he embodied this. He received the slap and he didn't return it for us so that we could be in him and like him. He was generous like no one else. You see it in his life and you see it in his death. In his life, he, he invited. I mean, when someone called out his name, he stopped for them. When someone touched him and out of their need for him, he turned to them 
He was generous with his time, with his energy, with his power. And in his death, of course, he gave everything so that we could be in him. He gave freely his life. He went the second mile like no one else, carried the cross on his back that second mile. And now he, he does the last verse here. Give to the one who begs from you. Don't refuse the one. He does that. He lives it. He gives freely to anyone who asks of him for life. He gives freely and doesn't refuse. You're in him. You're changed because of him, not because of you. But do ask yourself the question, am I changed? Am I different? Am I weirdly changed by the gospel? Because it has the power to do that in you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the challenge this morning this brings. Lord, we have questions. How much should I give to people? Um, when's the right time to turn the other cheek? And Lord, I pray that more than our objections and our questions, what we would hear is you inviting us into a life like you, to live into the life of Christ, that we would be so different, just not because of um, our weird Christianese statements or weirdly different because we um, are obnoxious, Lord, but we would be strange because we are so loving, non-defensive, generous, truthful, these things that stand out in a world that is not any of these things, Lord. Would you help us by your spirit in Jesus' name?